We're into Revelation 2, chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, we are working through Revelation. We'll do every bit of it, not just the seven letters, but we are in the seven letters is uh, where we are. So we are going to spend a week on each of the seven. It's important to understand, and you've known, I've been doing this for now over a year with you, the placement of these stories and these parts of Scripture are intentional. The reason the letters come after chapter 1 is important, but the reason they come before the visions of the victory and the wars and all of that that's going to happen is also incredibly important. So the first thing we're told in Revelation is how to read the book. This is meant to be a palate cleanser, to provide you with images, counter-images of how the world really is. And then that first big image, the controlling image, comes in what John sees, last week we talked about it, in this vision of Jesus. And that vision is going to be continually looked back on. John will continually be looking back and reminding you of what he saw. And he does it all through these letters, you'll notice. Every one of the seven letters begins with a description of that vision we saw last week. Not by accident. We'll talk about it at the end. So the reason these letters come now is this. Before the philipsis, remember I used that word last week, the, the, the tribulation, but it really means the pressing the pressure, and later on it's going to be called the mega philipsis, which is incredible pressing. Before that comes to the church, you and I must get our hearts in order. The church must be put in order or it will never survive the philipsis. And so before he shows us what is to come, he says, you must get in order. And he, it's a rigorous inspection of the human heart and of the churches. And we have to pay attention to what he's saying. And the goal of these letters, for Redeemer, for anyone who reads it, is this. The prophetic witness of Christ must become the prophetic witness of the church. Let me explain. Prophets didn't write for their own sake, or as I said earlier, to make you look into a crystal ball to determine when the end was coming. The prophets wrote so that you would heed the warning of God, and then pick up the message and appropriate it, and it would become your message. So, Christ's messages to the churches is for them to heed and to obey and to respond to it, but then to pick up that message and make it their own message in the world so that our message is not unique, it's not our own, it's Christ's message pushed out through the church. And so as we read these, we have to read them and realize he's speaking to you. So when we talk about the church in Ephesus forgetting their first love, don't externalize it and say, yes, the church, Carl, and the leadership have really dropped the ball. It's you and me, all of us. Don't externalize it and say, oh, I know who needs to hear this sermon today. It's you and I need to hear this sermon. In fact, all seven of them, remember last week I mentioned, 
all seven, the number seven is intentional. Each message, when you put them together, starts to fit a picture of what the church is like. So that we need all seven of them to give us an idea of who we are and how we're to respond to the gospel. And the embarrassing, hard part of what we're going to find is that the continual conviction of Christ to the church is, you have let the world in, all of you, all of us. And you're going to see that week after week. But there's hope in it. So what we see here in this first letter to Ephesus is motivation has changed. The works, the deeds are not so much the problem as much as it is why they're serving. And we're going to see that. So we're going to see Jesus as the great physician here. He diagnoses it a problem. He offers a remedy for it. And then he tells us how to get that remedy. Okay? So first, he diagnoses the problem of the church in Ephesus. Then he says, here's how to fix it. Here's the remedy. And lastly, he gives us the incredible news of how we are to actually become and grab hold of that remedy. And you'll see that in a minute. So let's begin with a diagnosis. Let's start with a talk about quickly about what Ephesus is and who it was. Ephesus um, is, and let's put the first picture up, it's of, the, of, well, they called it Anatolia at the time. It's a bit small, maybe you can see it. It's Turkey. And Ephesus is the port city, was right on the water. If you've been there recently, you know it's no longer quite on the water because of some world changes in the, in the way the waters go. So Ephesus is on the port. So what would happen was when a ma- the mail would show up in Ephesus on a boat, it would go there, and then the mailmen and the routes would follow a circular. It was called the circular road. And the letters unfold in this pattern. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And it follows a circle. It's almost as if it's meant to be read in all of these, and it's making stops along the way as the Pony, Pony Express you know, made its way around. Not quite the Pony Express. And so Ephesus is this port city. And we'll put the next picture up, and if you're, watching, if you're listening online after the fact, you can Google it. This is from the sky. It's hard to see, I guess. This is what it looks like today if you were to go to, from the sky at Ephesus. And you see the big theater at the top and that road running down the middle. Here's the next one of what it would have looked like in its day. Incredibly full. Look, at those are all houses, and there's all sorts of temples and plazas, everything. A massive city, a very powerful city. Now... It was the center of a hub. It was being on the, court, on, the, uh, on the coast. It was a great hub of trade, lots of money, lots of wealth. If you were to walk down, if you've been there, you know, uh, if you walk, there was a street that would go down the middle towards, and it would lead from the, the town right to the water. We'll show that one next, the next picture. And this is what it looks like today. It was 35 feet wide and lined with columns that led right to the water. Today, you won't quite get to the water if you go. And it was incredible and beautiful, a cosmopolitan city. It was full of so many incredible wonders. For instance, it had the Library of Celsus in it, the next picture. The Library of Celsus still exists, and they still will have concerts outside it. It's such a beautiful spot. It was the third largest library in the ancient world behind Alexandria and Pergamum, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. So it had an incredible library, but not just that. It was also the home of, if you know, the Temple of Diana, which was one of the great wonders of the ancient world, and we'll put the ruins up that still exist. This temple, and we can put the next one up too, what it would have looked like in its day, it was two football fields in size, hundreds of columns, 60 feet high, and had a statue of of Diana, or Artemis in the Greek, uh, that would be in it. And this statue would have been bare-breasted, fertility goddess. And as a result, there was a lot of sensuality in the city, let's say. It was a city like most cities we'd find today, incredibly powerful. 
And because it was incredibly powerful, it also hosted the Pan-Ionian Games, which was the second only to the Olympics. It's a very big city, important city. It was so important that a Roman emperor decided to make it something called uh, Civitas Libera, which means a free city. In the ancient world, the emperors could decide to give important cities free status, meaning you continue to give taxes and provide young men for the wars if we need them, and you worship the emperor. In exchange, you can elect your own rulers, you can make your own laws, and you can have autonomy, you can govern as a free city. But with this power, with this freedom, came incredible pressure, philipsis. Because if you want to enjoy the benefits of being a free city, you have to tow the company line. And so there was a lot of pressure within Ephesus, not just on the church, but just citizens, to be good little Romans and to behave if you wanted the benefits of this. And we know what happens when there is pressure on something. Pressure on coal, for instance, will cause it to become a diamond. Uh, even if you take something squishy, like a marshmallow, and you squish it, eventually what you do is you make it dense, you harden something. And so the impulse when you're oppressed is to harden, not just in the church, but outside everything, constantly. In fact, um, in the 1951 version of uh, Christmas Carol, you know, I, I, I like the book Christmas Carol, not because the theology is great, because it's not, but because it's a great book. And in it, in the, in the movie version with Alistair Sim, the best version, um, there's this scene that isn't in the book where a young Ebenezer Scrooge meets a young Jacob Marley. And Marley says to him, what do you think about the world, Ebenezer? And, and Ebenezer's response is, the world is becoming a very hard and cruel place, Mr. Marley. One must steal oneself to survive it. And the idea being, as the world presses on us, and the church as well, and who hasn't felt pressed in some way in the last couple of years. As we're pressed, the tendency is to harden. And we think that we change in pressure. We like to think as Christians that we change for the better. It's just not true. There's a study by a guy named David Sherman. He's a professor at University of California at Santa Barbara. That's him up there. And he has studied extensively on the, what, what is the impact of pressure, of, of threats to a people. And what he found time and time again is disheartening but understandable. That we change, but we actually don't change for the better. We tend to become harder versions of the people we already were. That COVID, let me use an example, hasn't made you, most people, he would say, better. What it's done is it's taken your either liberal or conservative values and made you more a caricature of that. You've become Ebenezer Scrooge. As a result, in one way or the other, you haven't grown in an other direction. You were already conservative to begin with, and now you're rock-hard conservative, or vice versa. And he says this happens in every situation, humanity, constantly. Most people just become nastier, harder versions of themselves in pressure. Now, not very fun, but here's what we do know about this letter that Christ offers to the Ephesian church. First, he commends them for their hardening, right? He's, and he's not, you know, he's not doing what I do, you know, and in my corporate life in the, ba- the past, I had to fire many people. And sometimes before you offer critique, well, not usually before you fire them, but before you critique, before you critique someone, you offer a nice thing, right? You don't want, you want to let them down nicely, so you offer them some ice cream. Um, it'll melt, but that's okay. While they're licking the ice cream, you say, You're, you stink. Um, 
But Christ isn't doing that. Christ isn't here saying, I commend you for growing hard. I commend you for keeping orthodoxy in the church. He's not saying that as, as a pat answer. He means it. It's good that the church cares about doctrine. It's good that the church cares about the purity of the message and the worship of God. That's very good. Yet, he also comes and says, but you have abandoned, Greek words aphemi, you have abandoned your first love. And in, depending on your translation, abandoned, it may say forsaken if you're a new King, a King James Version type, or left. And that word aphemi is important because it's, it's a word of willfulness. It's a word that means you didn't just forget, like, oh, I just forgot to take out the trash. No, you willfully have abandoned your first love. So somehow, it is possible, believe it or not, to defend the faith rigorously and still be completely out of God's favor. And this is hard for guys like me who love theology and love their education, and many of you too. It is possible that you may be thinking you're upholding the dignity of, of Christ in the church by defending orthodoxy, and yet he does not favor what you're doing. It's possible. At least that's what he's saying here very directly. And that is difficult to hear. It's, if you want to stick with the Ebenezer Scrooge example, when he, in his, one of his visions, uh, is shown his fiance he breaks up with, she says to him, another idol has displaced me in your heart, Ebenezer, a golden one. And for you and I, what this is, this is saying to Ephesus is saying, you started out well, but another idol has displaced you. Displace God from your heart, that you continue to do the right works, but you're not doing them for the right reasons anymore. And that's a possibility. That's clearly what he's saying here. It's almost as if to say, you know, think about love, and it's cliche, but when you first met your spouse, if you have one, um, there's, there's an attentiveness to those early days, isn't there, of love? Where you do stupid things, there's no such thing as, you can't be inconvenienced for time or money. You know, the person calls at three in the morning, you pretend like it's the greatest thing that's ever happened. You have to continually take them out for dinners, and you're going broke, oh, you'd do it anyway. Because there's attentiveness. You want to listen to every word, no matter how stupid it is, that comes out of the person's mouth, because you love them. And there's an attentiveness that is accompanying with love that they seem to have lost, it seems. It's almost like you have those date nights every week with your spouse, and after a while, you start to like the dinners more than the company. It's possible for that to happen. And so, like I've said, defending the faith is not synonymous with, with loving God. That is hard to hear, isn't it? Because sometimes we really think we're defending the faith so well, and it's possible God's saying, you've misunderstood. I don't need you to defend me. Not primarily, anyway. And that's hard to hear, but that's what he's saying. Now, if that's the first thing, well, I think, and let me say this as well. This is a serious issue. And in the community groups, one of the questions I ask you this week to consider is, he's saying, it's this serious. If you don't repent of this, you will lose your lampstand, meaning the church is gone. You've lost something. What have you lost? Discuss that in your groups. I'm not going to get into it. But it's serious. Your good works are useless if love is not there. And that is a harsh thing. He'll remove the lampstand from this church. So that's the diagnosis. Somehow you have to marry your actions with your motivation. Those must become one again somehow. Okay? And we'll talk about how he says we could do that. But the next thing is the remedy. The diagnosis is what it is. Well, how does, what does he want from us specifically? And it comes through in verse 5. It's so plain. He says, Remember, therefore, where you have, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. 
And the next one will show you in clearly those three things. Remember, repent, and do. It's very simple what he wants, but very difficult. So the response to this diagnosis is illness. Listen, the inevitable result of this sickness is death. If you don't repent or remember, repent, and do, then you will die. You will die as a person who has perfect theology, but no salvation. So what's the answer? First thing he says is re remember. We have to move a little quickly. I've mentioned, I speak a lot about the word remember because of communion, this idea of remembering. You dismember something, and to remember it is to bring it back together again and to pull something together, and it's not just an uh, uh, intellectual thing, but it's also a physical thing. When you remember your wedding, you feel some of those emotions. But when he's asking us to remember from where we have fallen, notice that remembering here is a distinctly comparative act. You're being asked to compare where you were to where you are now. That's what it means here to remember. See from where you've fallen. Um, when you go, think, keep the wedding story going. If you go to a wedding, I'm not speaking for all women, I'll just speak for, I'm gonna speak generally, so feel free to send me hate mail. If you go to a wedding, is it possible that women may be more than men in this case, and I'll pick on men soon too, but is it possible you go to the wedding and say, oh, those are lovely centerpieces, but very impractical. Or you say, oh, it's a beautiful dress, but oh, did they think about how the train is getting dirty? Do you think, have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to a wedding and compared yours to them? It's quite natural. When you go to a wedding, you think about your wedding. And as a pastor, when I listen to other sermons, oh, I'm at my worst. I'm at my worst. Because I say, boy, he chose to go in a stupid direction there. Why was that illustration there? And I'm inevitably trying to compare. Terrible to do in that regard. But here, Christ is saying, remember where you were and see how far you have fallen. And in seeing this, and seeing from where you have fallen, the next logical response is repent. Because you realize, oh my goodness, I'm a mess. I, where I was, how I was doting on Christ, and I was so interested in pleasing him. Now I'm just interested in what? Hammering the guy with the bad theology? Is that, is that what my motivation is? And he asks us to compare. And if we notice that that's the case, which he suggests would be in many of us, the answer is then to repent. And think about, again, now we're called to repent. What do we repent of here in this situation? Um, T.S. Eliot is a poet, well, was a poet, and he wrote this play that was in verse, kind of like Shakespeare, not quite as good, in my opinion, but it's called Murder in the Cathedral. It's about the death of Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, many moons ago. And in it, he has this line that is very thought-provoking. He says, the last act is the greatest treason, to do the right deed for the wrong reason. And he says, it's the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, why would Eliot, who's a believer, why would Eliot think that this is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason? Well, because of two things. It's a betrayal and it's a misrepresentation of God. Think if you have an old aunt who's going to, you hope, will leave you money. If that's the case, um, I'm not one, I don't have an old aunt with money, but if any of you are old aunts with money, I'm happy to become your <laughs> nephew. <laughs> but, no. but imagine, though, uh, there's a situation like that, and then you begin to treat her very well. You do all the right things. You do the things a nephew or a niece should do. You start to care for her. You love her. You spend time with her. Maybe you have to take her places if she's not doing well. Whatever. You do the right things. But the reason it's such a betrayal is because you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're, you're, you're feigning love to get something from her. And when we turn that to Christ and we say, I am giving you my good theology. I'm keeping the church pure for your sake. If we're not careful... We're doing it to try to win God's favor. And it's the right deed, 
but the wrong reason. And this is why later Christ is going to say, you don't change your actions, keep doing them, but change the motivation. So it's a betrayal in that regard of God, but it's also a misrepresentation because what you say to God and what you say to everyone in the church when you're around, and I would if I'm a pastor preaching in this moralism, what I would be doing is saying, this is the kind of God that we have, the kind of God who wants your behavior more than your heart. That's the kind of God we have. Very good. I had a... It's almost Pentecostal in here. Um, but, see, and this is a, a danger. We have to be careful that we're not trying to show, listen, I don't want to go to the church, if, uh, a church, oftentimes, because what I see of the church is not winsome. It's often just concerned with doctrine, and I don't see love in that. And this is, what, this is why we have to repent of it. We're basically we have to repent of serving in order to receive, Repent of, repent of preferring to defend over loving. And then we have to repent of thinking that we have this sort of a God who says, well done with your actions, even if the motives aren't there. This is just not the God we have. And do you begin to see now how all of these letters are so relevant, it's not just every generation, but to us. Haven't we had to defend a lot? Don't we feel like we have to defend? And we do. But simply defending without the love in it is disastrous, disastrous. So, he must repent of that. And then, what, so what do we do? He turns and he says this incredible thing. See, God doesn't want perfect moral agents. He wants children. And as a result, he then says, turn from what you've been doing. And then we'll see, the way you've been relating to God is wrong. Relate to him rightly. And the way you do that is by doing what you did at first. So, in those early days, when you did all the same things, you still were caring about doctrine and what God believed, but you wanted to serve him. He says, do that. You have to continue to do it. So it's this weird thing, right? He's asking almost the impossible. How do you stay rock hard doctrinally, but also porous so that you're willing to, I mean, you're seeing this right now with what Bill shared about what's happening in, the, in Ukraine. How do you take that orthodoxy and now forget about if the person's theology isn't right, but you love them. How do you do that? How do you keep both moments together? How do you become rock hard and rock soft? Or rock soft? That's not a word. So, whatever the other thing is. How do you do both? Because if it's not possible, then God is a sadist. Because he's asking you to do something you can't do, in which case he's no God. He's not a good one anyway. So there must be a way to somehow do what we think Christ was like in his ministry, which is to hold firm in doctrine, but also love. Think about how he behaved with that woman at the well. It's incredible what he does there. I would have wanted to tell that woman, five husbands, really? You can't be a servant in this church. You can't be serving here. That's what our tendency is. And Christ somehow brilliantly, beautifully holds both together. And it's that sort of combination that you and I needed. That's the only reason we're saved is because he could hold a firm line and yet welcome a sinner. So how do we do it? Is it possible? Yes. And this is the answer. This is how we begin to close. Begin to close. First thing, I remember encountering this before I was a believer. I was a good left-winger, like most people are these days, before I became a Christian. And I was reading the complete works of Che Guevara. That's what I was studying. I was off to do master's work in Latin American history and politics. I'm reading the complete works, everything Che Guevara, the revolutionary Argentinian who helped Castro defeat the, the Cuban ascendant, or Batista government. I'm reading it, and in it he says something that is, you see, the, the reason you can sympathize with the world, but also see why the world is so misguided. Che Guevara in it says, 
If only we could sustain the revolutionary fervor of Cuba. See, because in Cuba, he said, people were so ready for revolution that they were selfless. They were caring. Everybody was willing to give up anything for the sake of the group. And then, of course, that fervor ends. And then he goes over to the Congo and starts a, war, starts a revolution there. And he finds there's no unity. So he's disheartened. He goes to Bolivia where he ends up dying. Same thing. And listen, he's not a believer. But I can sympathize with his desire. How do we keep that fervor? How do we stay red hot, on fire? How do we keep the lampstand's flame burning? And a few, two years ago, remember those first weeks of COVID? Wasn't, it, wasn't the world nice? For a short time, then wasn't there some hope for us? Where we thought, look, everyone is agreeing. We don't know what COVID is at the time. Everybody's agreeing to wear a mask and to stay home. Celebrities were giving their billion-dollar concerts for free. You know, everything was, it seemed okay for a little while. But that didn't last long, did it? Because shortly after, it became, our leaders are idiots. Our doctors can't be trusted. Medicine can't be trusted. Nothing can be trusted. And what happens is, we find, much like Dr. Sherman said, when the threat comes, although there's a flare-up of positivity, it eventually leads to greater fracture. We're more divided than we were as a result. And so how do you keep this fervor? Well, Che Guevara was under the impression, wrongly, as the same impression as many people were. What we want is not um, uh, to, to do what Aristotle said. So Aristotle, for instance, had said, like much of the world, what we need is a common danger. A common danger unites even the bitterest enemies. So the impression of the world is the way to get this unity, to be hard and soft, to be perfect, is get a common enemy. If we have this enemy, like Che Guevara said, we need a Batista government again, then that's the key. But what we want instead is something that a biographer of Charles Spurgeon said, and I paraphrase, I won't put it up on the screen, but he says Spurgeon was a kind of man who was converted but never got over it. He seemed always to be Spurgeon. You know, as if everything you read about him was just him, it's who he was. How do we get that? And the answer is, okay, let me, let me go a bit further about the problem with a common enemy. When you round, unite around a common enemy, here's why it's doomed to fail. Because when you unite around a common enemy, you are uniting on the worst parts of your character. You're saying, let's all get together but our hatred for Trudeau. Let's all get together about our frustration, our fear, our anxiety. And then you feed those worst characteristics of you. And so for a time, it looks good while you all agree, but your problem is you're still a miserable fear, fear monger. So eventually what's going to happen is you start fighting each other. And then the party breaks. And it keeps happening because you're not meant to gather around the unity about a hatred for a common enemy, but around a common savior. You need a common savior, not a common enemy. And this is why I can look at guys like Che Guevara and I can sympathize because what they're yearning for is what every human is yearning for. The problem is they're seeking it in, in, in illegitimate, counterfeit ways. And so, with all that, let me move now. How this letter closes and opens tells us everything because now Christ tells us how it is that you are to be this sort of a perfect human being. And what he does is he says, look at the Savior that you have. And you see it in every letter. So all seven letters here in Revelation 2 and 3 begin and end in the exact same way. They all begin with a description of that image we saw last week. Remember Jesus with the woolly hair and everything? They all start with looking back. But then they all end by looking forward to Revelation 21 or 22. 
Let me, look at, let me show you what it means here. In this particular one, he opens by pointing back to the vision, saying, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, you remember from last week what that is? He holds everything in his hand, control, sovereignty, all of this. But the key image here is lampstands. But he's there. He's, he's, he's in amongst the lampstands, which means he's not just there suffering with you, but he's there so near to you that he suffers for you. It's not enough to suffer with you. He suffers on your behalf. But then he keeps that image of the lampstand, and he goes to the end. And now watch how the letter ends, this first letter. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So, good Old Testament scholars know, the lamps in the, the menorah that was in the temple, which is what he's surrounded by, the lampstands, what were they modeled on? The tree of life. They were meant to mimic the tree of life in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so, think of the it's brilliant imagery. The church, then, is now the tree of life for the world. But only so far as its candle is lit by the Spirit. The stars, which are the spirits, right? So the image is wonderful. But now, look, think, let's think about the history of this tree of life. The tree of life is there in the garden, and I know I'm going to get people frustrated, but think about this. When humanity sins in Genesis 3 and they are cast out, what does God say? He says, I can't let them live forever anymore. I can't let them eat of the tree of life because if they do, they're miserable sinners and I can't let their lives go on forever. So I'm going to limit them. This is what, so he literally says, I can't let them eat from the tree of life. Think about this. I am an impatient driver. Terribly impatient. Very impatient. I'm the guy tailgating you on the way to church. <laughs> it's funny for a moment. But if this impatience is permitted to simmer for eternity, imagine the devil I'd be. It's bad enough after 40 years. Wait till a million. And so God, by justice, says, I will put an end to human life. I can't let them for their grace. It's a gracious thing. I won't let them go on in their sin forever. Aren't we thinking that right now about certain leaders in the world? Aren't we gracious for death sometimes? We're happy about it? So he casts them out and says, you can no longer eat of the tree of life. We are now able to die because we have no access to this tree. Christ then comes, and throughout the New Testament, five, six different places, Book of Acts and Peter, the, tree, the cross is referred to as the tree. So when Christ goes to the tree looking for life-giving fruit, he finds the fruit we've put on it, sin and death. He then eats of that fruit on the cross, dies, and suffers, so that when you and I go to the, the tree in search of life, we can find it. The tree of life is restored to those who by faith will say, I think there's fruit on this tree, the cross. I think there's life here. And so this beautiful image that Jesus is putting together here is to say very clearly, there's a reward. If you repent, if you submit to it, try to be, if you look to this cross, if you look to the tree, you're going to see how Christ didn't harden well, he did, sort of. When, when pressure came on Christ, remember Romans 5.20? It says um, that as sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Think about this. The more the, pre the philipsis comes on Christ at the end of his life, do you find him getting harder and becoming a conservative Orthodox Christian jerk? No. You see him becoming softer to the point of praying for his enemies on the cross. His response to the philipsis is very different than ours, generally. And so... When we look to the cross, what we should see is that is our riding image. Our overriding image is the lamb that was slain. 
And so if we look to that continually, and that becomes the every reason we do everything from our work to our sleeping to our meeting with people to our serving and helping missionaries, then we'll find ourselves somehow becoming hard because we don't want, we want to honor this God who would die for us, but also soft because we know he wants us to die for the sake of the world, not for their sin, but to spend ourselves in his service. And it's only the only sustaining power that will keep us in any way balancing these two is the cross. There's nothing else. My clever preaching won't do it. This music won't do it. Even the testimony of people won't do it because the enemy will be overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. We can't just have one. And so this wonderful story that we're being told is the only thing we need is a common savior. And like it or not, church, we are the witnesses to that savior. Christ has then said, you are my witnesses in the world. We are to witness to the Savior. We're to be a place where the divisions out there don't happen. Where we have dialogue and division doesn't happen. Where love happens. Where restoration of of broken relationships happen, as hard as it is. Because we are meant to point to this better thing. Imagine you're at a window. Our job is to rub it with our sleeve and point out to the world and say, do you see how better things can be if you just repented? And that's our job as a church to continually be looking at the cross for our example. And I said this recently even. This is going to make us look at times radically right-wing and radically left-wing. Because sometimes someone's going to come into the church and they're going to be held to a high standard of marriage and fidelity. I expect, and the church and the elders expect, you will be faithful to your husbands and wives. However, if you stumble, there'll be discipline, there'll be love, and there'll be counseling, but we're also going to mourn with you And we won't just boot you out and cancel you because we know you're a sinner. So we're all at once going to be very hard on holding a hard standard. But when you stumble and want and seek repentance, we're going to forgive. And we're going to look at times you're going to accuse us of being too open, sometimes too hard. Good. That's what we're supposed to be. We're meant to straddle this line of being hard, orthodox, and loving. It's not easy. Pray for us as we try. (laughs) It's not simple. This is what we're called to be in the world. So two things I'll finish with very quickly. If you're a church, if you're a Christian already, then harden without becoming dead. That's what you're being called to here. Look to the cross continually as your source. That way you'll become hard, but not dead, petrified. If you're a non-Christian, then know that you stand at odds with this God. You stand at odds. You're the one being called to repent, not of the same things. But you stand at odds with a God you will meet. The check will come at the end of the meal at some point. And... By grace, there's only one God who will forgive you for everything you've done. And it's this one that died on the cross for you. So repent and believe. This is actually a really encouraging message, guys. I hope it, I know I get excited, but it's an encouraging message. Let's pray.